WhatsApp interpreters. I'm Christina Sid, the Director of Strategic Projects at the High Desert Museum in Bend, Oregon. I'm also on NAI's DEI committee and associate editor for the Legacy Magazine, and really honored to be the guest editor for uh, the Women in Interpretation issue of Legacy Magazine that's coming out in March, April of 2024. What's up, interpreters? This is Heather from NAI, your Corporate Engagement and Partnerships Manager. What's up, interpreters? I'm Song Stott, your NAI Conferences and Events Manager. Hey, Christina, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Before we jump into NAI stuff, Christina, will you tell a little bit just about your role at the High Desert Museum? I mean, I was kind of interested in the um, strategic projects. It made me think of time maybe before when projects weren't so strategic. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. So our it's a new, relatively new role for me. I've been in it for about a, a year and a half. And it the projects are definitely strategic and align with our strategic plan. And it's really projects that take deep relationship building, take maybe long-term partnerships and co-creation with communities, both within the museum, but also a lot of external partnerships are really key to the work. And so it's really about long-term projects as opposed to thinking about the day-to-day activities of what's happening at the museum. And I get to work on some really amazing things, like I'm working with our closest tribal partner, the Confederate Tribes of Warm Springs, to co-create curriculum for 4th, 8th, and 10th grade students. That's one of the projects that I'm working on. I also, um, the museum is working to be accredited by the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, and so I'm co-leading that project here at the museum. And then I also have a, a National Science Foundation grant uh, that I'm working on that really is looking at training STEM professionals and science educators at different informal sites across the United States on developing family programs that are culturally sustaining. And then those sites are creating programs in different rural communities around the country. And so it's really very exciting projects that I get to work on. And related also, I get to be a faculty mentor with an amazing set of students, graduate students from the University of Missouri St. Louis Heritage Leadership Program with Dr. Teresa Coble. And so I'm supporting graduate students in that Heritage Leadership Program and exploring different topics um, related to natural and cultural heritage. That's a lot. <laughs> and so, yeah, they, <laughs> I think that's in, um, you know, certainly, as we all know, museum professionals or informal learning professionals um, wear many different hats. And this for me has been really exciting. I was the director of programs and before this and had um, worked on exhibits and wildlife and collections. And so this has been an opportunity to to sort of narrow the scope of what I'm doing and work, yeah, work really deeply with communities and partners. When you say you're working with the school system, like, is that for their in-person learning in that school curriculum? Um, Or is it programming when they come to the museum? Yeah, that's a great question. It really is both. Several years ago, Oregon mandated Senate Bill 13, which is a tribal history, shared history curriculum that is developed by the nine federally recognized tribes around Oregon and its curriculum that they're creating for students in kindergarten through 12th grades. And then they're conducting training for educators who then teach that curriculum in the schools throughout our state. 
And so what we're doing and we're working with the tribes and specifically one of the tribes that we're working with is the Wasco tribe. We're creating curriculum um, for the tribe, but also to be used with students around the state. And that can be both used in the school systems, but also as to support the curriculum that we have at the High Desert Museum. So we may be using that as part of our school programs as well. So it's both for formal and informal learning. I see your name floating around a lot at NAI. You're a super involved NAI member. Um, I know that you've been on or still are on the DEI committee. You're a member of the JEDI section. Explain a little bit to us, you know, why is it critical that NAI as an organization um, has a DEI committee and incorporates JEDI principles into aspects of our operation? That's a great question and a really big question. And I don't, <laughs> so I might have one of the things that I've seen, and I'll, I'll give an example of what I really um, been honored to be invited to serve as the guest editor for Women in Interpretation. Some of that, that work came out of, and I think the invitation came out of me being an associate editor that I was invited by by Paul to be an associate editor for Legacy. In reviewing one of the issues of Legacy, I was seeing that the folks that were quoted, the books that were highlighted by the authors, uh, the authors were men, the images were of men, the references to leaders in the field were references to men. And again, I really uplift and think that there are a lot of knowledge holders and authors and thought leaders um, who are who are male, and I think that's wonderful. But then, as a woman, I as I'm reading that, I'm continuing to think about well, where um, are women in this field, and where are we represented and our stories because perspectives are different. And that was an example of some time where I didn't necessarily feel that that I was included. I think about when I was reading Legacy, where are role models that think about the lived experience that maybe that I've had or share, um, the knowledge, the values that come from women, that come from me as somebody that has a hidden disability that folks may not see, or the stories that I have that are represented. And I think, I know I'm certainly not alone in this journey. I really have appreciated the work that NAI is doing to continue to lift up and tell the stories of all of the people that make up um, not just the United States, but tell an international story as well. And it's important for representation for young people to really think about we're included, we belong in natural and cultural heritage sites. Christina, when did you notice this? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so you've been in the field for some time now, when, and, and a member of NAI for I don't how a long time. I'll say that my first introduction into NAI, certainly through Teresa Coble, but also Parker McMullen Bushman, was amazing. The first conference I went to, she warmly invited me into um, attending the DI committee meetings and to help uh, shape kind of the next future or where NAI is going in the future. And she has been a really fascinating and important role model. Um, to me, but also is working deeply with other people on the DEI committee, like Brian Forrest and Kyrie Collette. We as a committee have really talked about where are the areas in which NAI is doing a really great job in supporting and lifting up um, different worldviews, being accessible, thinking about accessibility and conference planning, which I know working with song, like that's something that's really important. And I also think we 
where we've done a lot of work, we also have um, some work that we need to continue to do to think about, for example, where are um, indigenous stories? How are those how are those being included in interpretation work? Um, and I think it's really been from the very beginning of my connection with NAI, and again, highlighting the wonderful work that's being done, but also what are some areas of growth that we need to continue to work on? And that is something that, you know, I know the Jedi committee is doing, or Jedi section, excuse me, DI committee, and then really thinking about NAI and the strategic plan that you all are working on, or I'll say we all are working on too, um, as I know that the members have great input into that plan. And so it's really been something that's embedded throughout everything that we're doing. Since we're talking a little bit about the legacy issue, do you have a vision for it at all? Do you, and I mean, obviously um, not all women have the same story, right? Um, and depending on where you're from and your demographic and your skin color and all, you know, your abilities, that could look different. Is it gonna, can you tell us a little about maybe what the issue might look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I'll say the proposals, the queries were due um, on Sunday. And so I got to read them all last night. And it's really exciting to see and read about the diversity of experiences that women and femmes have. So they're you know, I think it's really important to talk about intersectionality and that not all, there's not a singular woman's story, female story, that's really important to highlight, um, as you were saying, like uh, skin color, ability, uh, race, uh, experience, all impacts who we are and our trajectories. And, you know, their vision really is to highlight a diversity of experiences. And so there have been um, some submissions that have highlighted international stories. So it's not just even a singular United States story. There have been some amazing submissions too that are talking about braiding indigenous knowledge with Western science and art. How we can talk about creating living history characters from, you know, if you create something, a story of someone from the past in the 1800s, well, time is really different now. And how do we help kind of identify what a female experience was like in the 1800s, but also how do we think about that in 2023 and moving into 2024? And so we're hoping to bring a variety of these kinds of stories um, into the issue. And one of the things that I'm really also proud of, according to Lucian, who is um, the typical editor, that this is the most submissions that we've ever gotten. And um, since he's been here, and I would want to certainly check that with Paul, but there has been a lot of interest. And I think one of the things that came out of the NAI's um, conference that we just went to is you know, we're talking about like African-American history is American history. Indigenous history is American history. And I want to highlight too, that women in interpretation, these stories are important to all of us. And it's not just stories for women, but this is American history, our worldwide history, and these issues apply to all of us. And so I'd encourage people too, who think, oh, it's just for women. It's like, no, this is for all of us, our collective history and how we move forward together as a nation, I think is really important um, to have deep understanding of different perspectives and lived experiences and values of folks. Christina, you've mentioned Teresa Kobel a few times. Um, she's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful human being. Um, it sounds like she may have been a mentor for you in some capacity. What Can you just tell us a little bit about you know, the importance of being a mentor or having a mentor in this profession? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. And I do consider Teresa 
certainly a mentor to me. And as I've developed in my career too, we work in several projects and I I would think too that I know now that I'm um, hoping to teach her and we're sharing our knowledge together. And I've reflected a lot about the power of mentors in my career. And in this legacy issue too, there are people that I've invited to submit who I would consider mentors. And they're you know, helping me, again, understand how to navigate uh, the interpretive field and how to continue and build relationships, how to be a, um, I'll even say like a different type of supervisor, how to center equity, different ways of knowing. And they've, you know, the, a lot of women have definitely impacted who I am in this place today. But I'll also shout out to my uh, previous director at the University of Texas at Austin when I was the director of education there, Dr. Ed Terrio, really also was important in believing in me and valuing me and trusting me um, and also teaching me and making sure it was okay if I made a mistake. It wasn't the end of the world because I think often, you know, in this dominant culture, perfection is often what we're taught that we have to do. And in fact, perfection is not ever attainable. And so learning that it's okay to make mistakes has been really important. And when you do, it's kind of, how do you grow from those? Um, but I think another a key part and where I'll say Teresa Coble, for example, is a wonderful mentor to me is that she lovingly brings in people and highlights the work that they're doing and brings them into projects and keeps connections and thinking we can do this together. And it's really a lifting everyone up together. And so that's been something that's really important for me is not entering the space with ego, but really thinking about how do we lift each other up um, or support each other. And so those are kind of some of the things that to me are really important as being a mentor. That's interesting. I don't like to like create divisiveness and divides, but it do, it is, it, I, it does make me wonder how women and men in do interpretation differently in general you know when you talk about Teresa and sort of having that softer approach I wonder um, if that expands into actually frontline interpretation and this you know the like did you have formal education into this career of interpretation or did you just happen upon it um tell us how you got to where you are in your so my yeah I mean my journey into interpretation started when I was 15 years old and I volunteered in Galveston, Texas for the Galveston Historical Foundation. And then at 16, I got a job and led tours at Ashton Villa, a historic home in Galveston, Texas, and had training there. And then I moved into, um, like, I didn't know what career path that I wanted to have, but as a, um, you know, I gave tours in Galveston at a historic site. Then I went to a human-made rainforest in Galveston and did tours there and worked with the educational program. And then I went to college and had lots of different majors, but I worked at a um, at a nature center and, um, and did like summer camp counseling programs there. And I can remember sitting at the Austin Nature and Science Center in a creek, catching little tiny cricket frogs with, um, with seven and eight-year-olds. And I had the epiphany of like, oh, this is what I want to do. I want to be a teacher. And I went to school and got an undergrad in like applied learning and development with a focus on history. I taught fourth, sixth, and seventh grades um, in Texas. And I had um, some really defining moments when I was a sixth grade teacher. I did a professional development experience with um, a university 
And I went out into a cave and was able to dig up. Well, I won't say dig up because that's not actually true, but I went into a cave um, and found like 10,000 year old mammoth patellas and bird bones and uh, was really hooked into this, to paleontology. I didn't have a lot of training in that at all. And that really sparked an interest for me to return to graduate school. So I ended up going back to graduate school and got a master's in science education, finished up my master's, uh, my dream, a dream job. What I realized was, you know, I love teaching and, and I love science and I love science education and knowing that actually, I think my passion was really informal learning and informal learning spaces. And so a job came open as the director of education at the University of Texas's Natural History Museum. And it came open and I applied for it and I got it. Um, and so I was director of education and finished up my PhD in science education. And my dissertation all looked at like a nine month teacher training program based on the museum that I was working at in our collections and the impact on um, teachers' understanding and, and acceptance of evolution. And so this kind of through line of loving learning, loving informal settings from, you know, when I was 15 years old, my mom took me to museums. That was a key part of my childhood, and it was absolutely amazing and inspiring, and, and it's led me to where I am today. And so I finished my PhD, and then I think the thing, I have a very interdisciplinary background where I, you know, I'm at, think of history and science, like everything is so inter interrelated. And I saw a position open at the High Desert Museum in Bend, and I had never been to Oregon. I had never been to Bend, but I applied for it. And driving up the driveway, if you have not, if you imagine a museum, you probably are imagining a city, but imagine in beautiful, beautiful Oregon, driving up a driveway that there's pine forest all around you, national forest around you. And I drive up and I'm like, oh, this is the place. This is where I'm going to work. Um, and it's a very interdisciplinary place-based museum focusing on arts and science and culture and the way that my brain works. And so I was the director of programs here for about eight years. And now I'm the director of strategic projects. And I'm going on about nine and a half years at the High Desert Museum. That, that's amazing. Thank you for telling us. I was wondering what, how you found your way to, to a PhD. It's not necessarily something you need in this field, but um, I was kind of curious. So thank you. Did you tell us, Christina, how you got into sort of being interested in JEDI and DEI and you may have, and I just lost it somewhere. I was kind of curious about that and, and curious about how you, in your everyday work, how the high desert and you incorporate JEDI principles into the programming, into managing? Yeah, that's a great question of how did I get interested or connected to this work? Mm -hmm. Lots of different pathways. I'll say that I've moved around quite a bit as a young child and, you know, through Texas and uh, Illinois and Georgia. And I, in moving, I saw, met different people with different perspectives and values, lived experiences, and that really became, it was really important for me is to understand those different experiences and to know, really understand that we have different perspectives and it's not this kind of shared humanity. I mean, we have shared humanity, but don't have shared perspectives all the time. And for the High Desert Museum, there have been some really defining projects. Like I'll say, one of the things for me is I 
have evolved, my understanding of science, for example, has changed immensely over time. Um, and it is, I'm really grateful for the work that I've been able to do with the High Desert Museum. So we received several years ago, things to me in my mind right now are like pre-COVID or post-COVID or during COVID, but pre-COVID, um, we received a three-year professional development grant um, from the Institute of Museum and Library Services um, called Weaving Stories. And it was a partnership between the High Desert Museum and then our closest tribal museum, the museum at Warm Springs, that is about 60 minutes from here. And it was a professional development opportunity for each site, like the High Desert Museum, to really focus and learn around Indigenous ways of knowing. Um, and then the museum at Warm Springs, some of their goals were really to think about um, creating exhibits and programming and learning from us in those aspects. And we really actually, the grant took a mind of its own in a really amazing ways that really built deep relationships between a native and non-native museum. And we traveled together and went to the Smithsonian National Museum of American Indian and toured the collections together and hearing the learning from, I'll say our partners, but who are now my dear friends about the impact of having objects and belonging from tribal communities away from communities now, for example, in the Smithsonian, or we also visited um, up in Canada and other parts of Washington, seeing objects from people's families who were either, you know, who, who got in museum collections in different ways, forcibly or not. That was really eye-opening to hear the personal stories and learn more and read more about the impacts of these decisions that have been made to create uh, museums, how they've been created was something that was really pretty profound. Also attending things like Canoe Journey in Washington State with our partners, like these, I uh, feel like I'm not doing the greatest job of explaining, but it's a three-year professional development that really was time-intensive building relationships and friendships with our closest tribal partners and doing all kinds of professional learning together from reading books to listening to speakers together to traveling together. And for me, a profound change was really for me to understand different worldviews and that I, I'll say I don't fully understand and never will as a, as a white woman, um, indigenous worldviews, but it really helped me to understand when I was really trained in the kind of supremacy of Western science, imagine I do an evolution education dissertation, and I definitely think that Western science has great things about it and, you know, has helped to solve problems in the world but also to understand that there are different worldviews and different perspectives that are that are equally valid and really important and help us understand the world in more holistic ways. And so that part of that experience and then our continued partnerships, for example, that I continue to work on projects with the Confederate Tabs of Warm Springs continues to deepen my learning. And I think now that I see and learn things, I'll never unsee them. And I feel a deep responsibility to also share the learnings that I've had with other people. And that's why to me, it's really important, for example, that the women in interpretation issue highlights some of the amazing partnerships that we're working on here um, at the museum, but other people around the country. And, and now we have some uh, submissions from, again, other countries as well. And I think it's to get those stories and perspectives and elevate them 
is really just a key part of my work. And it's not just indigenous knowledge systems, it's thinking about ability as well as other, you know, I mean, I could go on and on, but one thing that I'd like to highlight is the different ways in which folks can get involved in NAI. I know that um, when I went to to the first NAI uh, meeting, I was, again, so lovingly brought into it with Teresa Coble, Kyrie Collette, uh, Parker McMillan Bushman have said, hey, get involved. Here's the DI committee. Um, I know Paul and, and Lucian have said, hey, write an article for Legacy. Get involved. We want to hear your voice and your story. I think that NAI has been really responsive, and I appreciate that they all now have a young professionals section and really looking for, NAI is really looking for how can we bring diverse perspective and voices into the conversation. And so I'll encourage folks to get involved. And if even if you haven't, like as a legacy author, if you have never written an article for legacy and you're like, that's not for me, I've never done this. We do want to hear your voice. Lucian, I um, have enjoyed working with him so incredibly much to steward me through this, being a guest editor on a um, on an issue, but also as I recently uh, submitted another article with Teresa too, like there's a gentle, loving stewardship of helping bring different voices to legacy or to NAI. And I just would encourage folks to get involved because when um, invited by folks like, you know, you, Heather, and Song, Paul, we mean it. Like we want folks to get involved and we also understand their time constraints, but I've just really appreciated how much I've been supported and grown and developed deep partnerships and connections with people around the country because of being able to get involved with NAI and learning so incredibly much. And so I just do, even if you're like, oh, this isn't for me, they don't want my voice. We do. And we invite you to submit for legacy or to get involved with the Jedi section or other sections, even if that doesn't necessarily resonate with you, but there are committees or sections that I think you can find your hook and your teeth into and would encourage that involvement as much as you can. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you for mentioning that. It is still a grassroots organization and you really can make a difference. You can affect change fairly easily and quickly. Um, and speaking of being involved, you were a conference presenter. Do you have any tips uh, for folks who might want to um, present? I think specifically you did Jedi, something with the Jedi track. But I'm wondering if you have what like what you would look for in a proposal. Christina, you've also been a reviewer of um, concurrent. Oh, yeah sessions mm -hmm. of the past. And so, yes, there's, this is another way to get involved with NAI. Um, and also you don't necessarily have to be a member to submit a uh, conference proposal, but yeah, Christina, any, any tips or any insights for people who are submitting proposals for conference? I think when proposing ideas, one of the things that I love about attending NAI conf the NAI conference is that there are research projects that are being presented and shared. There's also, here's a programmatic piece of something, an event or an activity that we did, you know, or that sites did at their home location, and they're sharing about things that they've done that others might want to learn from. Like there's a variety of topics that are being shared from sciences and history um, and so I encourage people to really think about what do they have that they might want to share. And this goes back to like, you have done something, 
each of us really does have a passion and a gift that we're bringing to this work. And so how can you think about the things that you're doing and that you might want to bring to others? I think we're looking for innovations in the field. I'm really interested in like where are people doing things in new and different ways and really like problematizing some of the things that sites have maybe always done? Well, I'll give an example of one of the articles that was submitted for the women in interpretation issue is really thinking about a person who's creating a living history character, but that person was of their time in the 1800s. And so now how do we interpret that in a 2023 view, for example? And so I think that's really thinking about when I say like innovations and interpretation, I think that's something that is important. When I review proposals, things that I'm looking for when people do talk about, um, I mean, really, quite frankly, I think Jediah justice. So I know some people are like, what is Jediah justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, and accessibility? Those really should, those concepts and principles should span any proposal that we have that's submitted. And I mean that from conference presenters, I beg of you, no matter how loud do you think your voice is, please use a microphone. <laughs> so like, those are things of like, you know, microphone use, and that's not necessarily what you can see in the proposal. But if you're in the proposal talking about, we're going to talk about diverse perspectives around topics about African-American history, for example, think about, well, what are the diverse perspectives maybe that you're bringing in? And also, how are you going to create safety within if you're talking about some topics that might be challenging or traumatic? How are you helping to create safety within that um, proposal? And I do look for, are you thinking about that and sharing it? I think it's also because our community, there's such different uh, interpreters from all different types of sites. I think that's really also important in looking at proposals is, are there a variety of topics covered? Because I know we also might, you know, different people want to learn different things and that different stages of their career, there are different things that you might want to learn too. I also and thinking about are some of these topics, like have we seen some of these topics before over and over? And are we ready for the next evolution of that uh, topic to go into deeper, deeper content? Um, even though I don't, I'm not sure that's what I want to say, but in more depth into an area, like I think sometimes I've we have, for example, DEI proposals. If we have some really introductory proposals, do we also have some that really deepen somebody's knowledge who are ready to take the next step or the step further? Thank you so much, uh, Christina, for being on this podcast. Yes, uh, thank you. And, and, and interpreters, interpreters, that's, that's what's what up. <laughs>